Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, we're joined by Andre Mater, head of a unit on biodiversity and forests at the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies in Japan. And I should also add that he's the host of a great podcast, The Case for Conservation, which will be co-releasing this episode. He joined me to talk about an issue of science communication that's related to COVID, in particular, how the literature, both peer-reviewed and in the media, handled and at sometimes mishandled the relationship between disease spillover and land change. And you'll find a link to his bioscience article on the topic in the show notes. But in the meantime, let's go to the interview. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, James. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about zoonotic disease spillover, which is when people catch diseases that have previously been present in animals. And before we get into the land change issue, I was hoping you could just give me a kind of brief overview of that topic. Yeah, well, spillover is the, it's just the event and the point at which an infectious disease makes its way from uh, animals to human beings when you're looking at uh, animal to human spillover. And so, uh, spillover can happen with emerging infectious diseases, which simply means it's kind of the first time that it's happened. You know, it's the first spillover, but it can also happen subsequently. You know, the, there can be multiple spillover events of the same disease. But I think generally speaking and looking at the news headlines that we were looking at for the article that we'll discuss now, usually spillover refers to emerging infectious diseases, ones that weren't known before. Um, and of course, COVID-19 is the one that everyone's become very familiar with. Okay. And so in thinking about COVID-19, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion early on that, you know, this disease had spilled over from a wild animal population. Um, and that was also linked to land change. And I was wondering kind of what very generally speaking, were the messages that we were seeing like? Yeah, well, this is exactly why we decided to write this paper. Um, very early on, it was made quite well known in the media and in the scientific literature that the virus seemed to have come from a wet market in, in Wuhan. Um, and so there was a lot of warning about the dangers of the wildlife trade, you know, the un unsustainable nature of the wildlife trade. And I mean, that's logical to a large extent because a large number of emerging infectious diseases have come from animals in the past. But at the same time, we were noticing that there were also a lot of headlines, especially in the um, media. So these are news sites and conservation organizations that were communicating about COVID. And uh, these headlines and articles were linking land change, which is a term that we use for land use change, land cover change, destruction of nature, all these different uh, concepts, uh, just a convenient um, way of bundling them together. Uh, but these headlines and articles were making a link between land change and spillover without really saying anything about how that happens. And so we just found this a little bit odd and were curious about exactly what the mechanisms were. And so we decided to, to dig into the science. And, you know, is that message that comes through in that early era that basically people have encroached upon, you know, um, a previous wildland and thereby exposed themselves to disease risk that wouldn't have been extant otherwise? Yeah, that's, that's the basic idea. Yeah. And there is a logic behind it, especially when talking about uh, habitat fragmentation, because what happens when you fragment habitat is you increase the interface between the modified habitat, you know, the human dominated habitat, whether it be urbanizational or agriculture or whatever, and the natural habitat. So you're increasing the possibility of uh, interaction with animals and increasing contact and also increasing the uh, 
the depth to which people can penetrate into those fragments of, of habitat. So there's a lot of good science behind that. Um, but the headlines that we were reading were a little bit more uh, simplistic than that. They were simply equating the destruction of nature with increased uh, spillover risk. And what we found when we looked into the science was that the primary literature, so empirical studies that went out and did specific experiments in specific locations with specific pathogens, et cetera, et cetera, they were finding mixed results. So most of them were indeed showing that there was a positive correlation between uh, land change and spillover risk. So in most cases, that was, but only just over 50%. And then the remaining 47% showed that there was either a mixed relationship, sometimes increased, sometimes decreased risk, and some of them were even showing a negative relationship between the two. And then on top of this, uh, something which we only mention uh, in a sentence in the paper, but I think is, is worth emphasizing, is that, of course, um, non-significant results are much less likely to make their way into the literature. Uh, so that 47% could be a lot larger. And that's pure speculation, but uh, there's a lot that's been written on the, the file drawer effect and the fact that uh, you know studies that don't don't produce wow data, don't make it into the into the science. So this is a case in which there may be some underlying evidence for some sort of mechanism that kind of is reflected in those simplistic headlines. But when you actually get into the primary literature that's been peer reviewed, mm -hmm. um, it paints a much more complex picture. Yeah, that's right. And there's also, um, what we did was we, we actually, before we got into the statistics of the literature review that we did, we also looked at some sort of hypothetical scenarios. And one of them looks at fragmentation in particular. And I mentioned earlier on that, uh, you know, fragmentation increases the interface between modified and unmodified habitat. But that is not always the case. So if you have a, a modified habitat, which is expanding outwards, then the, uh, the margin of that modified habitat is increasing and increasing, and therefore the interface is increasing and increasing. Um, but on the other hand, if you've got a uh, modified habitat, which is encroaching, sort of think of it just as a circle. And in the in the paper, we have very simple circle diagrams to illustrate this. If the modified habitat is kind of encroaching on this um, fragment of habitat and making it smaller, that means the interface is actually getting smaller. So theoretically speaking, that's actually possibly going to decrease the uh, the chance of, of spillover because the interface is decreased. And likewise, if you have a a fragment of natural habitat, which is the source of potential spillover, and you destroy that that fragment completely, then you uh, theoretically you'd be destroying the the possibility of of spillover completely. So I'm not advocating destroying fragments of nature, but that is what a lot of this rhetoric is is uh, suggesting. And then a, a final kind of thought experiment kind of example that we mentioned in the paper is that. Um, you can also create fragments. And uh, so a classic example here would be a, a green area in a city, in a park within a city. And there's plenty of literature uh, that indicates that such areas are healthy, you know, for human populations. But if you take the fragmentation rhetoric, if you sort of extend it in this direction, then you might find that it's it's sort of indicating that uh, creating a fragment in the middle of a city is is basically creating a spillover risk where there was none before. And so these are just thought experiments, uh, but they just seek to show that depending on how things happen, depending on what the pattern is, uh, the, the result could be different. So that was, that's an example, or those are examples of how pattern might affect 
uh, spillover. Uh, in other words, not always increasing it, but sometimes potentially decreasing it as well. But then with, uh, with process, perhaps even more, depending on what the process is, spillover may be uh, increased or the chance of spillover could be increased or decreased. So if you think of something, an activity like logging, for example, you get a bunch of people who go into a forest or to the margin of a forest and start cutting and may, might spend days or, or weeks there and catching bushmeat perhaps, you know, really interacting with the environment. And you can imagine the, the risk of spillover between animals and human beings being quite high in a situation like that. Um, but that's not always how habitat is destroyed. It might be destroyed, for example, by burning. And burning is famously a, a way of sort of sterilizing. Although, interestingly, um, there, there is a paper, at least one, that shows that smoke can actually increase the chances of spillover of certain pathogens. Uh, so burning is not necessarily a sterilizing, it doesn't necessarily have a sterilizing effect. Um, but just, again, showing that there are so many different ways in which it can happen. And so giving the impression, this this oversimplified impression that land change simply causes spillover risk is not only empirically questionable, but also theoretically questionable because it depends on these different factors and also just the incredible variety of different pathogens and ecosystems and land use change types and, and all the rest of it, and all the combinations that are possible in different situations. So it sounds like there's a great potential for getting it wrong, as it were, or, you know, at the very least, grievously oversimplifying the case and winding up saying something you know that's a uh, uh, very straightforward but perhaps not accurate for many different scenarios and kind of gives an incorrect understanding of the broader situation um, you know if you only expose yourself to that sort of um, secondary or tertiary literature where you know you kind of have these simplifications occurring mm -hmm. yeah that's right and uh, I think what what we found perhaps most surprising was that, so we started off looking at the mainstream media, you know, these headlines that were were popping up and it was so difficult to avoid. And then we dug into the science. And at first we were not discriminating between primary literature and secondary literature. But uh, what we quite soon discovered was that the, the primary literature that I mentioned, that was only, uh, it was less than a third of the articles that we, that we looked at were primary literature to start off with. So that's um, perhaps not surprising, but a bit of a bad sign perhaps as well. Um, so I mentioned the primary literature, about 53% showed a positive relationship between spillover and uh, land change and spillover. But then the secondary literature, which you'd expect to more or less mirror that, we found that 78% of the articles were implying that there was a positive relationship um, between land change and spillover risk. And then the the media, which we'd noticed anecdotally, we we, we looked into that as well and quantified that, and 99% and of the 130-odd articles that we looked at uh, gave the same message. So we expected the secondary scientific literature to be a bit closer to the primary scientific literature than it was to the the media. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, 78 is a, a bit closer to 99 than it is to 53. So uh, that, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I'm curious, um, can we talk a little bit about what, you know, is included in that secondary literature? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm not at all surprised by the fact that, you know, you see a, a, a rather severe oversimplification as you get into the media media. Um, but that that secondary literature is, is peer reviewed, is it not? And that's right. Yeah. Uh, so the way we divided it, and there are different ways of doing this, but uh, the primary literature that we looked at was uh, empirical studies, 
as well as models. Uh, and just there weren't very many of those, but we included those because they were coming up with their own uh, brand new information, even though it was estimations. And then the secondary literature included reviews, of which there were not very many, and mostly commentary. Uh, so these are just basically opinion pieces. There are different ways of naming them and different ways of classifying them, but essentially commentary or opinion pieces in the scientific literature. And there, of course, there's a gradient of quality there as well you know, within each of those uh, those categories. Uh, but within these commentaries, some of them uh, would mention mechanisms and they would go into some of the, the detail, whereas others would occasionally not even reference the, the primary sources that gave them this information, just kind of taking it as... Uh, conventional wisdom that this is the case, uh, this being the relationship between land change and, and spillover risk. Okay. And I'm wondering, what is the downside of getting it wrong in this case? I guess one could argue, and I certainly wouldn't, um, but one could argue that the end result of taking on board all of this oversimplification and inaccuracy is that you know, you're more inclined to preserve nature, maintain landscapes as best as you can, and you know, uh, do other things that broadly speaking, would probably be considered good by many. Uh, but what's really at stake here? What's the, what's the potential downside? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the, the key question here, I think, because, you know, we, we wrote this with some trepidation because I think it's really important for conservation to have important reasons to communicate to the public. And this was obviously, obviously taken by a lot of organizations, especially as an opportunity to tell people why we need to conserve nature. But it's a dangerous process and we, uh, or it's a dangerous gamble, let's say. Um, and we outlined three implications of it. Um, the first of them is that every situation is different. So if policymakers are making decisions based on a very generalized or oversimplified uh, conclusion, like land change causes spillover risk, then they could be uh, making those policies to the detriment of communities that live closest to nature. In many cases, destruction of nature may be increasing spillover risk. Uh, certainly, there are uh, plenty of examples of that. But there are also examples in the literature going back decades of where the clearing of certain vegetation or the dredging of wetlands was a huge help to communities because of the way that it decreased uh, tsetse fly or mosquitoes or uh, whatever other vector uh, or pathogen it might have been. Uh, so that's one one thing is just this this need to be location specific uh, because these generalized conclusions might not be applicable to all situations and indeed they very likely are not applicable to all situations. Um, the second one is perhaps a, a bit of a more big picture one, and that, that is the issue of scientific credibility. And uh, this is not, we're, we're not the first people to raise this issue, of course. But um, the simple point here is that if the public find out that land change doesn't increase spillover risk, then what are they going to think of these headlines that, that claim that? Or what are they going to think of the organizations who are, who are making these uh, claims? And then on a maybe even broader level, if COVID-19 turns out to not have anything to do with land change at all, I don't know if we'll ever find that out. Uh, but if that uh, if that does turn out to be the case, then of course the, the public are very unlikely to believe claims like that the next time around, even if they're entirely true. So that's the second one. And then the third one, uh, the third sort of implication is that, um, and this is only sometimes the case, in, in some cases, but they're not so rare, uh, there was an implication that 
land change was not just a cause of spillover risk, but the only cause of, of spillover risk. It wasn't always very plainly stated, but that was that was the clear kind of conclusion you got from reading the headline or even the, the article. And the problem with this, of course, is that it uh, takes attention away from other potential drivers of uh, spillover risk. And these drivers are all, they're interacting. Some of them are present sometimes and not present other times. Um, and so examples of this would be the uh, rapid travel, the inc incredible acceleration in travel that's happened over our lifetimes. The wildlife markets that we mentioned earlier on, of course, would be a, another one. Climate change, uh, there's increasing evidence that climate change might be increasing uh, risks. Uh, and then also a somewhat controversial one, but I think worth mentioning is the uh, the possibility of laboratory accidents. Uh, there are plenty of records of, of this having led to, um, to viruses getting where they weren't supposed to get. So yeah, just important, I think, to keep the nuance going so that all of these possibilities are still kept in the discussion. Okay, so it sounds like it's a case of, you know, wanting to properly convey all of the nuance and uncertainty, uh, both for the sake of credibility, but also then to ensure that uh, ultimately management decisions are made on a sound basis later on down the road. I'm wondering, though, you know, what do you make of this this task? How difficult is it, you know, for someone, say, in your position um, to convey that nuance and uncertainty um, and get the concepts across properly, but then also kind of, you know, reach a level of complexity that's not going to bowl over the members of the general public who are not, you know, necessarily immersed in these types of issues on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that something that's really doable? I do believe that it's doable. And I think that's that's shown by a lot of the good science that's out there and a lot of the good science communication that's that's out there. Um, I guess that there's just often a a temptation to go with the sensationalistic headline, uh, you know, whether it's in a, a scientific article or or in the media. Um, and there is, I mean, you know, we're not trying to stoke controversy here, but there there were some examples of in the, the mainstream media of statements which were not the fault of the journalists. They were the organizations, in many cases, conservation organizations who should have known better, making pretty bold statements to the effect that land change, you know, unquestionably is a uh, always a driver of, of spillover risk. Uh, so the responsibility lies all over the place. But we made a, a few recommendations in the paper, one of them being to to simply specify the, the context. Uh, you know, I was talking earlier on about how important that is. And also just to acknowledge that, you know, if you can't specify the context, if it's a really short piece, at least to acknowledge that a generalization is being made. Then also, uh, the use of consistent terminology was something that we looked at quite a lot in the beginning and then only mentioned it briefly in, uh, uh, later on because it would have taken us down too much of a sidetrack in the, in the paper. But uh, I mentioned earlier that we decided on land change as a sort of umbrella term for all the different forms of land use, land cover, change, destruction of nature, degradation of nature, all the rest of it. And different terms do mean different things but uh, the the variety of of terms in the scientific literature and the variety of ways in which the same terms were used uh, was was incredible you know there was just uh, no way of standardizing which makes it very difficult to compare sometimes so within the scientific literature in particular some um, consistency in terminology would be helpful and if not consistency then at least clear definitions of what is meant by a particular kind of of land change 
So that's a bit of an academic one, but uh, I think something which uh, could help in the scientific literature. A third one is the uh, uh, mechanisms issue that I mentioned earlier on. Just stating very briefly what is the mechanism behind this happening in a particular situation. And I think very often that can fulfill the function of actually keeping the writer in check. You know, if someone is expected to explain the mechanism and they're not sure of the mechanism, then they're going to be less likely to make a, a overly simplistic uh, claim in the first place. Then also two, two additional ones, James, I've got looking at my list here, <laughs> um, is to, to acknowledge uncertainty and exceptions. So, you know, the very simple acknowledgement that uh, this is not a, a cast in stone statement and that um, it's not always the case. And then lastly, I guess something to mention just for readers, not so much the science communicators, but the recipients of scientific communication is um, that, you know, to remember that science communicators, whether they're journalists or scientists or whoever else, are human beings as well and subject to their own biases. You know, so I guess what I'm talking about there is um, encouraging a more science literate public, which is a, a bigger picture uh, issue and it's more of a, an aspiration, I guess. Now, I think that's a great point. It well captures the fact that, you know, good science communication is at least a two-way street um, and one that requires sort of genuine engagement to be, you know, actually of value and effective. Um, let's talk a little bit about the different types of nuance that you noted um, across the different types of literature. You know, what was kind of, you know, feeding into that? Um, and, you know, what were the sort of differences that you were able to discuss in the paper? Yeah, so I, I focused earlier on, on the kind of direction of the relationship and you know the, the fact that uh, the especially the media and to a large extent the secondary literature was drawing uh, positive correlations between land change and uh, spillover risk but it was not just about the the direction and the accuracy it was also about the the nuance and we looked at a few different kind of metrics i suppose you could say and one of them was the the degree of uncertainty that was acknowledged in the primary literature versus the secondary literature and the mainstream media, for lack of a better term. And 79% of empirical and models, empirical studies and models, acknowledged uncertainty uh, in some or other way. Uh, and that went down to 53% for secondary peer-reviewed literature and, and then further down to 31% for the media. Uh, and then another one was looking at causality. So among the uh, primary literature, 51% expressed the, that this was not necessarily a causal relationship. But that went down to 10% uh, in the secondary literature and 4% in the, in the media, making the statement that this was not necessarily causal. And then when it came to specifying pathogens, uh, so that means, you know, saying whether this was a, whether they're talking about a virus or a bacterium, uh, or just very generally about pathogens. In the primary literature, 74% were specifying the pathogen or the pathogen type. In the secondary literature, that went down to 30% and then down to 17% in the, uh, in the media. And then lastly, specification of location of the studies, 60% of primary literature specified location, but only 3% of both secondary literature and uh, and media were specifying location. So I think each of these separately is not a big deal, but taken together, you know, there's a very clear pattern that, that forms this kind of loss of nuance as you move from the primary literature through the secondary to, to the media. Uh, and it's, of course, it's not clear 
whether the the media or very seldom clear whether the media are getting their information directly from uh, the primary literature or or from the the secondary literature it depends on the situation who they who they happen to be speaking to and and what kind of um, communications are are ongoing there uh, but that's that's the pattern yeah, and that's fascinating. And, and I think, you know, surprising that the location in particular is mentioned so rarely. I mean, because obviously there's going to be a, I mean, it would seem to me at least that there would be a significantly different level of risk and type of risk in a, you know, a, a habitat fragment like Central Park, New York, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus, you know, a, a rainforest in the Amazon or something like that. Just a very different, just a very different situation with very different mechanisms and pathogens. Right, right. And what that means is, you know, that 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 lack of specification of pathogen and and location. What that means is that uh, just very general statements were made, implying that this is a general rule rather than something that applies in a particular situation. Excellent. So I think that that makes a very strong case for you know a nuance and specificity, um, and I think it will give our listeners quite a bit to you know chew on both as communicators and those who are being communicated to. Um, and I, I would just like to thank you very much for um, you know sharing this time with me today. I've learned quite a lot, uh, and I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much for having me, James. Very much enjoyed it. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.